This week, we see that Christ will be revealed in Matthew chapter 4 as the overcomer of temptation. But before we read this passage in Matthew 4, which will be familiar to some of you, if you've been around the church or if you've read the New Testament or the Gospels before, it is easy for us in passages particularly like this one to overlook the reality of Jesus' humanity. It was not a foregone conclusion that Christ in the flesh would resist and overcome temptation. John Calvin says, Christ did not only take on our flesh, but our feelings as well. When Christ became human, he took on a human body and mind and will and heart and emotions. So as you hear Matthew 4, let's keep that in the forefront of our mind as we see Christ revealed as this one who overcomes temptation. Stand with me for the gospel reading this morning. From Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry because he was human. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the, principle, on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Father, we pray simply this morning that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning who Knoxville's most famous author is, I wonder who you would say. I would encourage you and entreat you to say Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy lived in Sequoia Hills. Cormac McCarthy went to Knoxville Catholic High School, and Cormac McCarthy wrote the 2007 Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Road. He's written various other books as well, and seemingly every book he writes tends to show up on everyone's top 100 list of the last 10 years, or the last 30 years, or the last 50 years, or the last 100 years. Cormac McCarthy is a fantastic writer, and it's really kind of neat to think that he lived in Sequoia Hills, and he went to Knoxville Catholic High School, and then he moved from Sequoia Hills to Martin Mill Pike. It just kind of makes it a little more real for us. I don't know if you've ever read any Cormac McCarthy, 
I want us to think this morning about this book that I just referred to called The Road. The Road is set in a post-apocalyptic setting in America with a father and a son as the central characters surveying this landscape that is desolate. The book itself, on some level, kind of has this feeling of, what's the big deal here? And one of the things you start to realize when you read the book is, the big deal here is the beauty of his writing. And the big deal here is the beauty of the relationship between the father and the son. Many literary critics actually say that's the central fundamental thread throughout the story of the road is this relationship between the father and the son in a desolate land. And specifically what we see in this story is the father's care for the son. Specifically, we see the father's affection for his son. I want to read to you two short excerpts from the road about the father and the son. The father says this to his son, my job is to take care of you. I was appointed to do that by God. I will kill anyone who touches you. Do you understand? And I know that's an isolated thing for you to hear this morning, but when you read things like that in the midst of the narrative, it is subtly prophetic and deep. It is rich. He goes on to say at another point in the story, the son asked the father, what would you do if I died? If you died, I would want to die too. So you could be with me? Yes, son, so I could be with you. Okay. Matthew chapter 3 that we looked at last week is about the father's affection for the son. And as a result of the father's affection for the son, we who are followers of Christ, who are in union with Christ, rest in this same sort of affection, in this fundamental relationship. It is our identity. And it's extremely important for us to understand that if we want to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. I said last week, J.I. Packer says, you can judge how well someone understands Christianity by simply trying to figure out how much they make of God being their father and us being his beloved children. However much you make of that is a determining factor, maybe the determining factor on how well you actually understand Christianity. As beautiful as the father-son relationship is depicted in the road, the father-son relationship that is depicted in the gospel is even richer and fuller and has longer-lasting impact, among other reasons, because it's not fictional. And it's important for us to understand what we established last week, for us to understand what's happening in Matthew 4 this week, because Jesus in Matthew 4 is moving from the embrace of the Father out into the entreaty of the devil. You can see from the very beginning for us to understand what it means to deal with and to fight, and to overcome temptation in our relationship and in our union with Christ, we must realize that if we are not resting 
in an affectionate relationship with our Heavenly Father, we are immediately the most vulnerable people to temptation that walk the face of the earth. Because you see, our only hope from the very beginning, right out of the gate, in a world that is filled with temptation, in hearts that are filled with temptation, in a culture that is filled with temptation, is to have our identity rooted and grounded in an affectionate relationship with the Father. Because you see, if we don't know who we are, then our life becomes a journey of trying to figure that out. And temptation waits for us every moment. If we don't know that we are loved, we are going to seek to be loved by any and everything. And we're going to be tempted to find our identity and our affection and our love in any and everything. Other gods, idols, the Bible calls this. But the more we understand Matthew 3, the more we will truly understand Matthew 4. You see, Christ is, over, is able to overcome temptation because of his rootedness in the embrace of the Father. And that's the main thing I want us to see from Matthew 4 this morning. Because we're in Christ. And we've been empowered to live as Christ lives. And we see Christ overcome temptation through his rootedness in an affectionate relationship with the Father which gives us the indicator of what it means for us to overcome temptation. Before we unpack some details of overcoming temptation in Christ, I want us to allow the reality of temptation to settle in a little more deeply into our hearts and our minds and our lives. Chances are we are so steeped in temptation that we become anesthetized to it. You see, I think that Christ has come to bring holistic redemption and renewal. And one of the ways that I like to think about it is that Christ has come to transform our heads, He's come to transform our hearts, and He's come to transform our hands, right? Mind, soul, body, spirit, hands, feet, lives. But the simple alliteration is head, hands, or head, heart, hands. Actually, the order doesn't matter. And we think about that Christ has come to redeem and renew these things, maybe this is a good way for us to identify right out of the gates some of the ways in which we are tempted. Some of the ways we are tempted to turn away from God and turn towards ourselves in our heads. We are tempted to believe the lies that we are better than other people because of our skin color or because of the country we live in or because of the balance in our checking account. We're tempted to believe in an inverse way that we are unlovable and that we are worthless. Therefore, we're tempted to self-rejection. And when we're tempted to self-rejection, that's a great ground for temptation and sin. We're tempted in our heads to not believe the gospel. We're tempted in our heads to think that we are too far gone. We're tempted in our heads to believe the lie that if I struggle with blank, there's no way God could love me. But temptation doesn't only make its way into our minds, it makes its way into our hearts. And it's manifested through our pursuit of things like power and comfort. We're tempted towards comfort because our hearts are sick. 
and what we would rather do is numb. We're tempted towards approval. We're tempted towards control. We're tempted in our hearts to seek first our own kingdom. We're tempted in our hearts to put politics and particular political parties and policies and ideologies ahead of Jesus. We're tempted to put money ahead of Jesus in our hearts. We're tempted to put education ahead of Jesus in our hearts. We're tempted even to put religion ahead of Jesus in our hearts. But we're also tempted in our hands, are we not? We're tempted as parents to be the all-sufficient Messiah and Savior for our children. And every day, regardless of how thin those margins get, we're seeking to prove before our children that we are sufficient. Of course, that desire for self-sufficiency isn't only manifested in the home, it's manifested in our jobs, right? I mean, all jobs in one way or another are meritocracies. In fact, we live in a meritocracy in our, in our society. So how hard is it to not be driven out of a desire for merit? And therefore, we put our hands to these things. We put our hands towards objectizing others through things like sexual lust. Or we even put our hands towards things like objectizing ourself with regard to body image or our diet or our exercise regimen. We put our hands towards the temptation of expressive individualism. If I feel this, if I have this desire, God would not give me this desire if he didn't want me to act upon this desire. Therefore, I must act upon this desire. We're tempted to do that. It's called expressive individualism. If it feels good, do it. We're tempted in our hands to literally medicate pain. We're tempted to be quick to speak and slow to listen. We are quick to judge others' sin versus mourning over sin. That's just a few things off the top of my head that we're tempted to do on a daily basis, this barrage of temptation. And the rub starts to come at this point. Okay, I am tempted. I'm even tempted more than I realize. This is the first time I've slowed down for a week. I'm following what he's saying. I think these things are plausible more or less. So what do I do about it? Our initial inclination most likely is to downplay the reality of temptation. Yeah, I'm glad other people are here hearing that. In fact, I wish blank was here because I think they really struggle with that temptation. So we downplay it. Our temptation also, with temptation, is to concede the inevitability of falling into it. Yeah, that would be great. When Jesus comes again, I will not objectize women. That'll be great in the new heavens and the new earth. Who gives you the right to say that? We do live pre-new heavens, new earth, but we live post-resurrection. And does that mean nothing with regard to how we look at other human beings? We tend to just concede that falling to temptation is inevitable. And then lastly, our response to this that doesn't work is we seek to fight it in our own strength. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to be more moral. I'm going to set better boundaries. I'm going to follow this list of rules. That's what I was taught to do in Sunday school as a kid. 
need to get back to that. Just try harder. None of these things work. The reality is we live in a broken world. We're broken people, and we're tempted every moment towards deeper brokenness. But here we have this passage, and here we have a Savior who is being revealed as fully God and fully human, and He is being revealed to us in this way. He overcomes temptation through His rooted relationship with the Father. Let's unpack temptation as we look in a little more depth at the reality of temptation, the nature of temptation, and how we actually fight temptation. The intention, by the way, maybe I should have said this in the beginning, was an extended intro to usher us into this reality of how we in Christ overcome temptation. We see Christ overcoming temptation, and we can overcome temptation in Christ through a relationship with the Father as we look at the nature of it, or as we look at the reality of it, secondly, as we look at the nature of it, and thirdly, thirdly as we look in some detail on how to fight temptation. Okay, the reality of temptation is it's there. And there's different parties that lead us towards temptation. The text actually says that the Spirit led Jesus not to temptation, but into the wilderness. And guess what? When you're led into the wilderness, you're led into an environment where temptation flourishes. And this, we just have to recognize this, that the Spirit leads us to hard places. That's a reality. It's a reality that I don't particularly like. It's a reality that I would prefer as a leader of a gathering that we are seeking to grow. It's a reality that I would rather not broadcast. It's a reality that doesn't show up on many church marquees, but it's a reality that we see throughout the entire story of the gospel, that the Spirit consistently leads us to hard places and specifically leads us to the wilderness. But the Spirit is not the only one leading in this passage as we look at the reality or the origin of temptation. We also see in this passage that the devil is present, that Jesus was led by the devil towards temptation. The devil just rolls off your tongue, right? Like, I wonder how many times a day you say the word the devil. Probably not many. But if we're going to understand the reality of temptation, we have to understand the reality that there's an enemy. An enemy who most specifically as we take His person and his names in the original languages seeks to do two things primarily, split and accuse. We live in the persistent reality that there is an enemy that is working against us, that is seeking to split and accuse if we take what his name means literally. We read this, in the Scriptures from Paul in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen to this. Like, think of all the things that you wrestle against. Like, if, if you were to go have coffee tomorrow morning with someone, a good friend, and they were to say, hey, what are you wrestling with? My guess is you would not say, you know, 
my wrestle is not really against flesh and blood. Like my wrestling is not really against my spouse. My wrestling is not really against my children. My wrestling is not really against my job. My wrestling is not really against the idolatry and the materialism that pervades my life. Those are all the things we would say we wrestle against. But the Scriptures say, for ultimately, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh-oh. It's like a big deal. Reminds me of a bike ride that I took with my brother and sister a couple years ago. My brother and I are pretty enthusiastic cyclists. My sister was excited uh, as she was starting to get into uh, cycling and got herself a pretty nice road bike. And we were in St. Louis, headed out for a good ride. And we don't all live in the same places. And so this was a coming together. And boy, she had been looking toward, you know, forward to it for a long time. Um, and I think had been doing some training even, knowing you know, that she was wanting to keep up with her two older brothers on this particular ride. And so we start out and, um, you know, we're going to take it easy in the beginning, just kind of acclimate to what's going on. And she's immediately struggling more than I would have imagined, um, given that I thought there was some preparation for this ride. And um, we start out, and St. Louis is not a very hilly place. It's no Knoxville. There's some little rollers here and there. And man, it is like World War III for her. And I'm like, this In my mind, and in fact, in conversation with my brother a little bit ahead, we've already decided that there's going to be a pre-ride and a ride, Um, and that this has now been declared to be the pre-ride, of course, not to her. And um, so we keep going, and no kidding, about three miles in, um, she's like done, and we're just kind of like... You know, trying to be nice, I mean, but, but also tempted to revert back to, like, antics when we were kids, you know, two older brothers, a younger sister, and anyway, so we're doing all we can do to, like, rally, and I remember pulling off in Forest Park at an urban park in St. Louis and going over there, and she's like, I don't know what it is, and she's frustrated, and she's, like, really emotionally, too, I mean, at this point, I'm not going to kid with her because she's really sad about it, um, but then she's really physically exhausted, and my brother, who tends to be a little bit more mechanical than I am with regard to bikes in particular, says, well, let me look at your bike. And I, I wouldn't even have thought about this. He looks back, and something has happened with her, brake, her rear brake cable that has the brake pads completely compressed on the rim <laughs> as if her brake was being, you know, closed by the hand of God. Um, and to be able to turn that wheel would have been a struggle for Lance Armstrong. Um, and then at that point we laugh, and then also at that point she's so exhausted that she can't continue. Uh, and it makes me think about this. Like, we know in life that life is a ride. We know it can be a struggle. We know that we have to climb hills, and we know we're not always in the best shape. But don't you ever have this sense that it's kind of like, this is like hard-er than I think it should be. Like, I mean, I'm not a great person. I'm kind of a mess, but like, seriously. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Or not only against flesh and blood. John Stott says, We all wish we could spend our lives in undisturbed tranquility among our loved ones at home in the fellowship of God's people. But the way of the escapist has been effectively blocked. Christians have to face the prospect of conflict with God's enemy and theirs. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, said this, I am certain, this is so true, that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have become so psychological in our attitude and thinking, we are ignorant of this great objective fact, the being and the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser, and his fiery darts. If we want to understand the reality of temptation, we've got to understand that we are tempted within ourselves, yes, but things outside of ourselves as well. From time's sake, we don't have time to go into this, and we can revisit this at another venture. But I love Winston Churchill, and I love when Churchill talks about the enemy. And I love how analogous that seems to be spiritually speaking. And what we see in Matthew 4 is Jesus in a Churchill-like way and what could potentially be the darkest hour. We see Jesus in one of his finest hours overcoming temptation and fighting against the devil. Of course, implied in what I just said, our hearts are sinful too, right? Like it's, the devil doesn't make us do things. The devil, I believe, since he's not a creator, he's not powerful enough to do it, he just takes that which exists in our own hearts and our own lives and he amplifies it. He does not create out of nothing. He takes what is and he explodes it. But if we don't understand temptation, we do have to understand that our hearts too are sinful, that we are our own enemy. And we have an enemy outside of us. That's the reality. That's the reality of temptation. What about the nature of temptation? If we're going to see how Christ overcomes these particular temptations, we've got to see what Christ is actually being tempted to. When Satan asked Christ to make the stones bread, what is he tempting Jesus to do? And at this point, I'm going to rely heavily upon Henry Nouwen, who's a great theologian and teacher, taught at places like Yale and Harvard, but ended his fantastic ministry amongst pastoring and ministering amongst a community in Canada of mentally handicapped adults. And Henry Nouwen's got a book called In the Name of Jesus, and it's about Christian leadership. And he unpacks in great detail, and I think with great precision, the ways in which Christ was tempted. And he said, ultimately, Christ was tempted in three ways. Christ was tempted to be relevant. Christ was tempted to be spectacular. And Christ was tempted to be powerful. And so I'm going to use those for us to understand more in depth the nature of temptation. And so this first idea is a temptation for Christ to be relevant, to meet felt needs, including his own. Take these stones and turn them into bread. What would have been so tempting about that? Mm, I don't know. He was hungry. You ever fasted? You ever skipped a meal? You ever felt hangry? You ever done it for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, that was Jesus, right? Like, I mean, Jesus. Like 40 days, 40 nights. That wasn't hard for Jesus. That's why I said what I said in the beginning. This is extremely hard. However hard it would be for you, that's how hard it was for Jesus. Do not degrade the person of Christ by downplaying his humanity. 
He was hungry. And Satan knew it, and he tempted him to do something, you know, that was relevant. Like, to their felt needs at the moment. Do something that will please people. Do something that will make this palatable. You know, on Sunday mornings, don't preach from Scripture. Just say some, like, nice things that people want to hear. Just be relevant. Like, have some relevant music. Have some people that look relevant. you got to be relevant in order to meet and reach our culture with the gospel. But the problem is we get so consumed with relevancy that we lose the gospel. And guess what? The culture's not drawn to that. In fact, most non-Christians that I interact with see this usurping of relevancy above the historic Christian gospel from a mile away and don't want anything to do with it. And that's what Satan, oddly enough, is tempting Jesus to do right here. Just be relevant. Meet your own and other people's felt needs. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. My primary purpose is real needs because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus overcomes this temptation to be relevant. Now one says this, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant. It's a great church growth strategy, right? And to stand in the world with nothing to offer but his or own vulnerable self. That is the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. One more before we move to this temptation to be spectacular. David Wells, who's a theologian and a great social scientist, and studier of culture, said this years back in a book called God in the Wasteland, talking about the movement of the Western world and the absence of the gospel. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to stop the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon His church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. And His gospel is too easy. And His Christ is too common. That's the problem. Jesus knows that, so He doesn't fall into the temptation of being relevant. He just sticks to the boring old truth that man doesn't live by bread alone. Jesus also here is tempted to be spectacular. Now one says this, the second temptation to which Jesus was exposed was precisely the temptation to do something spectacular, something that could win him great applause. Throw yourself off the parapet of the temple and let the angels catch you and carry you in their arms. But Jesus refused to be a stuntman. He did not come to prove himself. He did not come to walk on hot coals, swallow fire, or put his hand in the lion's mouth to demonstrate that he had something worthwhile to say. Jesus was the anti-rock star. He wasn't going to fall into the temptation to be spectacular. He also wasn't going to fall into the temptation of Satan, who, by the way, knows Scripture 
and uses Scripture. And then Jesus usurps Satan's use of Scripture by saying, actually, there's a hermeneutical principle. You're not real sure about this, Satan. I know that you know some Scripture. You don't really embody Scripture. Let me teach you something about interpretation. Scripture interprets Scripture. So you throw Scripture at me, but you're taking that Scripture out of context. I'm going to put Scripture back on you. I'm not to put my God to the test. I don't need to be spectacular. I just need to be normal. I don't need to be extraordinary. I'm just going to ordinarily do something in humility that's absolutely extraordinary, which is not sin. I'm just going to do that. And let that maybe in the long run be spectacular. I'm just going to you know, hold off right now from falling into your temptation. I think I'm going to go ahead and just live the next three years not ever thinking anything sinful, not ever saying anything sinful, not ever doing anything sinful. I'm just going to heal people, and I'm going to feed people, and I'm going to hang out with people. And then in about three years, I'm going to be accused of something that I didn't really do, and then I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to catch this thing called sin that's like a virus, and I'm going to be the host for it. And everybody else is going to wonder what's going on, and I'm going to tell you, in that moment, it's going to be pretty spectacular. But not in the way that you're tempting me to be spectacular right now. Lastly, Jesus is tempted according to now and to be powerful. Once again, if you'll allow me, I want to read from him. When I ask myself the main reason for so many people having left the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, and also in Canada and America, the word power easily comes to mind. One of the greatest ironies of history in the history of Christianity is that leaders constantly give in to the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral or spiritual power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. It's so interesting, Satan's last thing, this temptation of power. He's like, hey, I can give you all those kingdoms. And, you know, I'm just at this point, if I'm Jesus, I'm pretty sarcastic. It's like, oh, really? Like, those are your kingdoms? Like, you have power over them? You can give them? Oh, thanks, man, that'd be great. You know, because I kind of thought that they were, you know, like, my kingdoms. You know, I I created them. I'm God, my father. But you're going to give me the kingdoms, okay? But Jesus doesn't fall. He just, like, doesn't fall for it because he's not power hungry. You know what Jesus is? He's humility hungry. That's an anecdote for us in temptation, right? What if we were not power hungry, but we were humility hungry? I'll tell you what would happen. It would allow us to fight temptation more. Because actually, believe it or not, let's refer back to a common struggle. Sexual lust, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, is driven by pride or power. What if you were humility hungry? It'd be a lot easier to not objectize people. What if you were humility hungry? It'd be a lot easier to not judge people on Facebook, right? Jesus overcomes these temptations to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful by doing two simple things. And just got a couple minutes here and we'll close. He does these two things. One, he remembers his baptism. That's where we started, right? He rests in the embrace of the Father. How does Jesus fight these temptations? How will we fight these temptations? He remembers who he is. He remembers his identity. He knows that these other things will not give him identity. He knows that he is resting in the affirmation and the belovedness of the Father. 
He remembers that. What else does he do? He recalls Scripture. Every time Jesus recalls, why does Jesus do this? Look at me. Because he needs to. Because he cannot fight temptation and the lies that exist without the truth of God's word. And of course, at this point, we have to say this. If Jesus needed to recall Scripture by memory in order to fight temptation, how much more? Like, how much more do we need the Word of God, which the writer of Hebrews says is sharper than a double-edged sword, that divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, that the psalmist says is like a tree planted by streams of water, that the women on the road to Emmaus said, didn't our hearts burn when He spoke the Word of God to us? Don't you need that burning? Don't you need that sword? Don't you need that tree? If you don't have that, you don't have a chance. Because the Son of God Himself needed the Word of God to fight temptation. And how much more is that true for us? It reminds me of Luther's great hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. How? One little word will fell him. In conclusion, what do we do with this? We've seen how Christ overcomes temptation. We've learned a little bit more about the reality of temptation, including the reality of the devil in our own sinful hearts. We've seen the nature of temptation, been guided very helpfully by Henry Nouwen in this idea of we are tempted to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. We see that Jesus fought temptation by remembering his baptism and recalling Scripture. And now we can be empowered and encouraged and exhorted to overcome temptation like Christ could easily close in prayer right there. But if I did, we're not getting the whole gospel. You see, there's an exhortation in this scripture to fight and overcome temptation like Christ, like Christ as our example. You know what is also embedded in this text? Christ not simply as an example in overcoming Christ in overcoming temptation. But we see Christ in this text as a Savior who has died for the fact that you don't overcome temptation. Who has died for the fact that you do not resist and that we do fall into sin. So Christ is an example on how to overcome and Christ is a Savior. And that's the good news for those who fall. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for stories. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for being relevant, actually, 